We pass through them on autopilot like a train going through a station and not stopping. Every day we pass these through these moments that are could be life changing instants of time. And we uh, just like that train going through this, you know, going through the station without stopping. We miss it. Welcome to the Flywheel Podcast. This show is for entrepreneurs and creative free thinkers. Each week, we share ideas to help you build a better business that's more focused on building a life rather than just making money. I'm Victor Jimenez. To stay up to date on the latest shows, visit theflywheelpodcast.com where you can get notes on all the shows and sign up to receive updates. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to The Flywheel you're in for a treat today. I have a great episode in store. It's a little long. It's a little over an hour. It's longer than my typical episode, but I promise it will be worth your while. So one of the biggest challenges for for entrepreneurs and, and, and real you know, businesses and actually every human being on the planet is dealing with change. And, you know, we always are kind of stuck in our little mode like I'm right and the other person is wrong. And how do you begin if you have this clash? How do you begin to come together and affect some sort of positive change? So my guest today is Dave Gray. Dave is an entrepreneur, a designer, and a leader. He works with and has worked with startups, Fortune 100 companies, and just about every industry you can imagine to help them use design to bring their strategies to life. He's the founder of Explain, which is a strategic design consultancy and co-founder of Board Thinking, a collaboration platform for distributed teams. He's the author of several books, my favorite, which is called Game Storming, which is a playbook for innovators, rule breakers, and change makers. And also he's the author of The Connected Company. In today's episode, we're talking about liminal thinking. I know your brain just kind of did a hiccup, like, wait a second, liminal, liminal, what does that mean? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Uh, you probably never heard of it before. Uh, Dave has a new book called Liminal Thinking. I hope that you'll check it out. Uh, and we're going to discuss it here in depth. This is a great episode. And here we go. Welcome to the Flywheel Podcast, Dave. This thanks so much for for being here. This is great. I thought that uh, we talk about your your new book. I, a lot of people, um, I think, a lot of people listening to this podcast are familiar with the book um, uh, Game Storming, uh, which has sort of been uh, a bible around here in my place. It sits here and I pick it up all the time. And uh, you know, when if, if I'm doing a workshop or even just doing things on my own, how how am I going to think through this uh, this problem or or bring up an idea? Your your new book, Liminal Thinking, is is a little bit of a uh, it's a very simple book. I read through it as we were just talking before we started here. Uh, I read through it just the other day, and it's a very simple read, but it sort of blew my mind in in a little a few places. Just trying, it was sort of uh, I've trained myself. Uh, maybe I have a limiting belief. I don't want to go there in some of these things. So, do you want to just start? 
what the heck is liminal thinking that you know i've never heard that before this is this is a new word right yeah well and part of that is is by design honestly victor Mm -hmm. you know when one of the primary barriers to learning as i'm sure will be not a surprise to hear when you think about it is that you think you already know something Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest barriers to learning something new is that you think you already know it or you believe that you know it and you have the way that we think about things. We attach labels in our minds to things. And um, so one of the challenges when you're trying to convey any information to anybody, whether it's new to them or not, is to actually convince them that there is something that they can learn from that. So. It was intentional and it was a bit of a gamble with the book to title it something that really had it means nothing, almost nothing to almost anybody, everybody. Yeah. Uh, but it it does have a meaning. The word liminal is a, simply a word that means threshold or boundary. It comes from the world of anthropology and it is uh, a word that is associated with change and rites of passage and moments of significant um turmoil related to personal growth. And so in a way, the title of the book was a bit of a code for those people who did know the word, who recognized it, that this Mm -hmm. was a book that dove deeply into these psychological issues related to change. Uh, But it was also a signal for those who had not, you know, who, who were not familiar with the term that this is something new. This is something that you haven't, maybe haven't heard of before, or you maybe haven't done before. I'll just tell you a story. I was uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was invited to speak about design thinking to a group of CIOs, chief information officers of global organizations. These are very, very serious, kind of heavyweight, technology oriented um, business people. Mm-hmm. Very, very practical, very pragmatic, and of course, as you can imagine, they think they know everything already. So what are you going to do when you're presenting to a group like that? (laughs) And I was uh, talking to them about the work that my company does. And I hadn't used the word design thinking. I was, but I was presenting to them some ideas. And one of the CIOs raised his hand and said to me, is this like design thinking? And I, I, my answer to him was, well, yeah, it is design thinking. And I gave him my description of what I thought that was, is, you know, uh, the process of getting groups of people to work together using the kinds of uh, skills, tools and techniques that designers typically use. But to get, you know, this these kind of tools in the hands of people who are not designers so they can actually have a more creative and uh, slightly different approach to the work they're doing. And I said, does that jive with your definition of design thinking? And he said, not really to me at all, to, more to his peers. He hmm. said, design thinking is something that comes out of Stanford. And if you want to do design thinking, the company that does that is IDEO. Hmm. And this is his definition of what design thinking is. Interesting. Which really actually, there's, if you unpack it, there's nothing in there about what design thinking actually is. And um, it, what's in there is what was attached to the label in his head was there's a source that lends this label credibility. I know where that is. That's Stanford. And there's a company you go to if you want to buy it. And that's ideal. And I realized then that 
especially at these very, very high executive levels in organizations, the level of cognitive load that they're dealing with, the, the, the level, the, the sheer volume of information, fads, things that they have to process is so high that they, uh, that's the way they, that's the way they package and process things. And I realized, okay, um, there's no point in me talking to senior executives about design thinking. There's no point in it because that's already pre, you know, prepackaged for many of them mm -hmm. in this way. Um, so if I want to actually break through that barrier, I need to show up with a label that they haven't heard before. That's unattachable to anything they've heard before. Um, and I do believe, and I think having read the book, I hope you'd agree with me. There are very important messages in this book that need to be heard by that top level CEO, C-level people in organizations, whether or not they think they have heard it or know it under another label, it has not worked. Um, mm -hmm. They are, um, there are, I would say at, at least half of the senior executive, very, very senior executives in large organizations are operating under delusions that will create huge problems for them unless they can actually start to unpack what's happening in their own brains until they actually are able to achieve a certain level of humility that will allow them to start paying attention to what's happening around them instead of, just like that guy in that meeting, instead of operating under their assumptions that they already know things. And uh, so the title of the book was intentionally aimed at, now I know that guy, I don't remember his name. I don't right. remember what organization he worked for, and I'm glad I don't because I would probably <laughs> yeah. name and shame them if I did. But the the fact is that that guy, the first time he hears someone mention the term liminal thinking to him, he's going to ignore it and discount it because it's just a it won't mean anything to him. The second time it it may register, but mm -hmm. the third time that he hears that, he's actually going to. His eyes will open and he will ask himself, even if he doesn't say it out loud, mm -hmm. he will ask himself, oh, is this something I need to know? Is this yeah, actually is this something I need to know about? Is this something I've heard this a couple times now? Should I know what this is? Is this something I need to know about? And so mm -hmm. that that's a very, um, very honest, but a slightly cynical description of why the book is titled the way it is. Um, I think it's it is a gamble. Because you, most people, you want to be able to see in the title what you're going to get out of the book. Right. Um, but it's, in a way, it's also practicing what it preaches. Hmm. <laughs> exactly. You know, to, to me, you know, I would sum up, it's a practice of humility, really. Right? I mean, isn't that, yeah. you, know, you know, if we would sum, sum it all up, it's a practice of, of uh, relating and relating to others the way i would sum it up is to say that everyone has something in their life they want to change I mean, nobody has a totally perfect life everyone has some things in their life that they would like to change it may be the relationship with your boss it may be um something about your company it may be uh your personal relationships that you want to have a better relationship with your wife or husband it might be that you want to lose weight everyone has things in their life that they would like to change and the biggest barrier in most cases to that change actually happening is within your own 
mind and the way that you're showing up and interacting with people. Because every, another thing that everybody has is autopilot, uh, certain routines mm-hmm. that we use to manage our life. And we go through our life. We, we build habits and routines and just like our standard way of doing things. And the most important thing, the most, if there were one message from the book that I would want people to take away, it's a, absolutely the most important thing you can do is in those areas of your life where there are things you want to change to turn off your autopilot. Because turning off your autopilot will actually force you to pay attention. There's, there's tons of things around you that you're missing when you're on autopilot. Because when you're on autopilot, you're not there. Mm-hmm. And uh, just it's simple and obvious to think about it. You can't change the past. Past has already been written. It's mm-hmm. been done. And you can't change the future because the future hasn't arrived yet. The only place where you can actually create change in your life and affect change is in the moment. The ab- in the present moment, whenever that is. And the only way that you're going to change anything is by paying attention to what's going on around you and noticing things that you don't usually notice. Because a lot of us spend so much of our life on autopilot, a ton of it. We're, we're, where's our mind? It's We're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about mm-hmm. this project that's due. We're, we're thinking about that argument that we just had. A, we're still kind of angry about from yesterday. Or we're remembering something. Or we're remembering happily something. But we're not in the moment. And when you're, when you're on autopilot, you're missing things. You don't think you're missing things, but you don't, you're missing them because you don't notice them. And by shut, simply shutting off your autopilot, even if you don't know why or what you're going to do, you're forcing yourself to pay attention. And the, um, one of the best ways I've, I've thought of to describe this is to think about your route to work in the morning. Everyone has a route, even if, even if you work in this, in the, uh, even if it's just going down the stairs, you work from home, you still have a route that you take to work every day. Mm-hmm. And if I told you that you could take any route you wanted to, to take to work except the ones that you've taken before, you could you you had to take a new route to work, you would not be able to do that on autopilot. You would have to pay attention yeah. to where you're going. I mean, I suppose you could program a new route into your Google Maps if you have that in your car or whatever. But if I, if I told you you had to do it by yourself, that you had to pay attention, you had to actually notice – you're not the, the 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 point is that simply by turning off your autopilot, you don't actually have to know what you're going to do. You just have to shut off those routines and that will open doors to you noticing and things that you would never have otherwise noticed. And it will open the door to change in those areas of your life. Dramatic change, really, really simple things can create dramatic change. And I can give you examples, too, if you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Go for it. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'll tell tell you one personal story with my wife. I, mean, I have some personal stories in the book. I don't think this one made it into the book, but um, I one of the things that the patterns in my life that I wanted to change was being. Um, uh, I grew up in a family of boys, so when you and we were pretty competitive, aggressive kind of. Uh, uh, family. My father was competitive. And so we, you know, have this thing of poking each other a lot. And yeah. one of the best, uh, you know, one of the habits or routines that I had built up over those childhood years was a, a kind of a, a defense mechanism, which was somebody, if somebody pokes you, you poke back immediately. Um, it was mm-hmm. almost like a reflex. 
And this reflex had served me well in, in childhood with this competitive male dominated, uh, you know, environment, but it was not serving me well in my marriage. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I was intentionally, I was, uh, meditating. I started, you know, I was just really paying attention and focusing on what are the things that I wanted to change. And one of the things I wanted to change was that trigger that provoked me from, in, you know, from that feeling of being poked to poking back. And, um, what I, what I meditated on and focused on was this idea that I did not want to, you know, take the trigger off completely. Uh, I just wanted to be, take a pause and have a moment to think before reacting when I felt a certain way. Not easy so, to do. <laughs> not easy to do, but this was simply, I didn't have a plan. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a plan of what I would do differently. I just had a, I just had a very strong, uh, heavily reinforced intention to when I felt a certain feeling to have, give myself a moment before reacting. And so a, a, a morning came on a, you know, kind of a cold, coldish day. And my wife and I uh, often will walk the dog together in the morning. And it was one of those, um, I was, it was, I think it was a Saturday because I was waiting for her and it was about, you know, 10 a.m. I was reading the um, paper, waiting for her to come downstairs. And she, she did come downstairs. She came downstairs and really fast, she, she walked, by, walked up to me and said, are you going to walk the dog with me or not? Like a very, <laughs> you know, a kind of a, you know, a way that was like, whoa, where did that come from? And, uh. Uh, I said, yeah, yeah, give me a minute. I've, I've, I've been waiting here for you. Just give me a minute to put my shoes on because I do want to walk the dog with you. So uh, I put my shoes on and she was waiting impatiently by the door. We uh, we walked out and I said, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong. Do you want to make something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> We've all had moments like this in our marriages, right? Absolutely, I mean, yes. Everyone's had, this is not a, and this isn't a man-woman thing. This is just a relationship thing. It's like you, <laughs> so these things happen where you're feeling not, you're just not feeling connected. And that was the moment where I, um, I had, a, a, had a, a, a moment and my autopilot was a kind of a predetermined reaction to that. And that, yeah. I was literally standing in our backyard on the on the driveway, which is the back we have a driveway that goes around, and I was standing there, and I had my moment to think about it, to stop the trigger, because the trigger would have been, screw you, you yeah. here's the dog, you walk the dog, go for your I'm, dang walk, <laughs> just go for your dang walk, and I'm I'm gonna, you know, and then that the autopilot routine from there on was pretty much uh, there was a routine that we had, which was. We don't talk to each other maybe for a day, a whole day could be, <laughs> we're not, we're icy, silence, frigid air in the house, um, but I didn't. I, I was able to hold that. That was the only thing that I, I really was doing with any intention or thought behind it is just mm -hmm. pause. And so I just stood there for a minute and I thought, okay, I don't have to react. I don't have to do anything. Um, I just stood there and I said, 
no, I don't want to make anything wrong. And I just, we just walked, I walked beside her in silence for a while with the dog. Really had no idea where this was going to lead. It was new territory, really. Yeah. And uh, after, before we, it's a pretty long driveway, but just about the time we were getting to the end of the driveway, so this was kind of like a minute of silence. She said, you were really mean to me in this dream I just had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my and gosh. That's of course, we both laughed and we it, it was then we had this really interesting conversation about how hard it is sometimes to tell the difference between something that happened in a dream and reality and how those emotions get confused. And, um, and we had a great day that we would not have had if I had reacted in the way that I typically autopilot would react. And the whole, whole, what happened in one second Mm -hmm. changed the whole day. It changed it from a pattern that, uh, was a routine that she and I would go through to a completely different kind of a day and a kind of a, a story or, you know, it, that, I don't know how um, revel, revelatory this feels because a lot of this book, when when I actually talk about it, it's kind of not hard to see in retrospect. What's hard to see, though, is what, how those routines and habits are holding you back. I was triggered, those moments, yeah. those, you know, which second of your day could you change that could change your whole life? Right. And that's, these, that's these, the key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These moments. I mean, we, we pass through them on autopilot, like a train going through a station and not stopping every day. We pass these through these moments that are, could be life changing instance of time. And we, uh, just like that train going through this, you know, going through the station without stopping, we miss it. We miss those. Uh, we miss those so frequently. It's, it's, uh, it's so much, uh, just paying attention to to where we're at, um, it sounds like it's a, it's a lot like uh, you know just mindfulness uh, me- meditation. You know, bringing awareness to the moment. And a lot of people sort of, I guess there's a trend now that's coming back to business and to the workplace. Um, but there's a little bit of uh, how do I put it wooiness attached to that and there's a lot of resistance yeah. uh a lot of resistance so well, i sort of i sort of described to you why i didn't call my book mindfulness thinking yeah. right yeah. i think that's the reason for that is that there are people who will discount that immediately just based on okay yeah i mean there's baggage there's yeah. baggage with uh with hypnotherapy hypnosis there's some of that in liminal thinking as well um there's um there's a uh yeah, so what, one of the things that I try to do with this book is um, uh, create some clean language for some concepts, some of which are very, very old, ancient even, mm-hmm. concepts, but to create some very precise and clean language that kind of strips away the baggage while that's associated sometimes with those concepts while uh, being faithful to the, the core tenets. And... Um, you kind of like there's it's almost like, well, if you take if you take uh, Buddhism and mindfulness and um, 
uh, hypnotherapy and meditation and you just kind of strip away, uh, you strip them naked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's part of what, that's one way of describing, I think, what, uh, what I'm trying to give people with liminal thinking. Okay. So one of the things that, that, uh, that, um, I want to go into a little bit is, so we want to create some sort of change like you, you mentioned there. And we have a, a, uh, well, right now when, as we're recording this, it's a perfect time right after a very contentious, uh, election in the United States. Oh, it's a, uh, it's a liminal, <laughs> it's a very liminal stage for society, for the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Absolutely. So, so, you know, obviously we, we, there, there's, there's basically, it's pretty clear. There's, there's two different sides, maybe, maybe more, but we all, each of us, has a very hard time grasping how the other side can believe what they believe. That seems, you know, I, you know, what I believe is right, and what you believe is wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, of and, course. And uh, you know, this is the human humans. Uh, this is our problem. So. How do we begin to to even you know start to come to some sort of common ground uh, when you're completely wrong and I <laughs> and I know you are. Right? <laughs> uh, well, the sort of the I think the answer is baked into that question, really, right. isn't it? You, I, I think the so again, I believe it comes down to uh, turning off the autopilot. Okay. And the, the part of the autopilot is you're completely wrong, mm -hmm. right? And I'm completely right. And at, trying to pay attention to what is actually happening and what is actually going on. And we have the sphere of politics is one that is rife with multiple agendas, hidden agendas, overt, covert. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the area of politics is, um, uh, you know, the people who are professionals at it are very good at manipulating emotions, mm -hmm. um, very good at stoking fear, um, anxiety. Um, it's the end of the world, you know, uh, right. if the other side gets elected or, you know, whatever. And it's how people get elected, you know, part of how that it, happens. It is. And we all are playing into that to some level. And I think there's a... Um, what I think is most important is to recognize how beliefs come to be and right, yeah. our own beliefs and other people's beliefs, whether, and I do, I don't believe that all, I, I would never say that all beliefs are equally valid. There are beliefs that are more, uh, based on reality and there are beliefs that are less based on reality. And we have ways, we, we have some time tested ways of determining those things that we also have some ways that we should be very aware of about human biology and and how our our brains and our bodies actually work what do you mean uh, well um do you i mean any individual person's beliefs are going to be based partly on what they read in the science book but more and far far more on their everyday experience what right. they do every day what works for them you, everyone has, and we have, a, a, what, seven billion or so people on the planet? Sounds about right to me. 
those are 7 billion individual personal experiences of reality, 7 billion. Um, just to make it, you know, explicit, I'm, uh, I'm a white man. I, there's no way that I will ever know what it's like to be a black man in America or a black child or growing up in America. There's no way that I'm going to be able to uh, truly understand that experience the way that someone who's lived that experience understands it. There's no way that I'm ever going to understand what it's like to grow up a woman in America mm -hmm. uh, or anywhere else in the world for that matter, right? Or anywhere else. There's, there's no way that I'm going to understand, be able to understand what it's like to grow up in um, uh, Syria. They're at the level that someone who has grown up there. Of course. So if we can start by recognizing that we all have a valid set of experiences that we are building our beliefs off of, and that there's nothing that you believe that invalidates those experiences that other people have had. There's nothing that you could think or believe that in any just or fair world would invalidate those other experiences. And to start by recognizing that, that this person who's wrong, let's say, mm -hmm. has had a set of experiences in their life that have reaffirmed these beliefs to them, that these beliefs are not coming out of uh, nowhere. They're coming from a set of very personal experiences. Um, you know, the, the more limited a set of experiences is, the more likely they are to be wrong or valid only in that one place. You know, if you have someone who's grown up in a uh, rural town where they've pretty much seen the same 250 people yeah. for most of their life, has not traveled outside of that vicinity, um, maybe except to watch a baseball game in a, near a city or something like that, has spent most of their time surrounded by the same set of people, they're going to tend to have a set of beliefs that are um, – they're they're uh, they're just based on a much more limited data set than someone who has traveled around the world, um, visited many places, uh, spent sure. time, spent a year here or a year there. Um, if you have someone who's uh, grew up, let's say, in a military family and uh, uh, spent their life in a military culture and their experiences of other. Um, places has been fighting wars in those places. They're going to have a one set of experiences that are going to be, and what we tend to do as human beings is we tend to cluster around people who validate the, the, the experiences that we've had and who've had, you tend to, that's how we relate. Sure. Right. We tend to hang out with people who have experiences that are similar to us. I was in the newspaper business for about 10 years. Uh, and I could go, I could move from one city to another and um, I could stop working at one newspaper, go across the country, start working at another newspaper, and the experience was almost identical. Hmm. 
because yeah. I was in the newspaper culture and the jobs were uh, pretty well structured. There, There's always going to be this set of jobs. And I knew how I fit in with the system and how things work there. And uh, I think so we have uh, I think the first step to reducing the, the division that that we have is actually recognizing that we have to start with the people being valid as people. Right. And I, what I hear a lot of is that, you know, well, if someone believes this, they have to be an idiot. They have to be uh, insane. They have to be crazy. I think that's a very easy excuse to invalidate someone's experiences as a human being. Um, I think it's very uh, lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, if, if you want to say, let's say you have a, a greater set of experiences to draw from than someone else. Let's say you have. Let's even give you uh, the benefit of the doubt and say you have a higher level of intelligence than the people that you disagree with. Who do you think who, who should take the burden of, of actually taking a step in the direction of the person who disagrees, the person who's dumber, who has limited experiences or the person who has a more broad set of experiences and actually is more intelligent? Who do you think is most likely to be the person to reach out and uh, be the bigger person? Who do you think should do that? Yeah, it, it seems like um, the if if you're using that case, probably you know it seems like the more intelligent person, maybe. Well, yeah. If you, so if you think you're right, right, <laughs> you probably think you're the more intelligent person. Right? Of course. If you think you're right and the other person's wrong, you, whether it's true or not, yeah, you probably think you're the more intelligent person. So it's on you. I mean, if you have a, if but you they have think a, the, they think the same thing. Right. Well, so it's then it's on them, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. To, to reach out, to step. So maybe it's on both of us, both parties, to reach out and try and understand what were the experiences that led you to these conclusions? What is it that in your life? Why is it that? How did you come to this belief? Where did it come from? What, what have you seen? Um, what have you heard? Uh, we have we are all susceptible to this thing um, in the book uh, that I uh, talk about called self-sealing logic, where you know your uh, your logic is circular. Circular reasoning is another way of putting it, where you uh, you believe X because Y, and you believe Y because X. Yeah, and it's a circle. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know what? Every time I think, I'll give you just a very simple example. My boss is a jerk. Yep. How do you know your boss is a jerk? Because every time I interact with him, he's a jerk. Well, so have you ever tried? I mean, how do you know that there's that there's do you think does your boss have a, a husband or a wife? Does your boss have anyone that loves them that doesn't feel that way about them? Well, what do you think that per, how do you think if there are other people who have different beliefs about this person? Do you think that might have anything to do with the way that they're showing up, that the way that they're interacting with that person? So often we interact with people in ways that are consciously or often subconsciously engineered to confirm our beliefs about the stereotype. Right. Or, That's right. Uh, and when we, as long as we're on autopilot, we're not going to shift those beliefs. I'm a big fan of um, don't try to change people's minds try to 
create an experience for them that will result in them changing their minds. If you have beliefs that are different than someone else and you have experiences that have led you to have hold those beliefs, maybe you can replicate those experiences. Maybe you can find a way to bring that other person through some experiences that are similar to ones that you've had and then help them see something differently. Help them. Right. Have some sort of find some common common ground to, to begin with and, and start to understand each other. And um, even this, even experiences, you can have experiences that are two people can go through the exact same set of events and uh, sit through the same movie, come out with totally different experiences and conclusions because of what they partly because of what they brought in with them or the mood they were in or or mm-hmm. whatever. So I think it's also important to understand that the way that we experience reality is heavily driven by our emotions and what our emotional needs might be. Someone who grew up in a family, well, like me, I was telling the story about growing up in a family was very, um, you know, uh, you had to be on your toes because you were going to get, it was a yeah. very, you know, uh, tough family to grow up in um, emotionally. Well, um, that is going to color all of my interactions and experiences with other people my whole life. I need to be aware of the fact that I'm going to show up in a way that's has something to do with my emotional needs to, uh, and my emotional need in my family growing up was just to be left alone. Right. Just to not be just, just to don't push me here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so really, so, and even as I look at my adult life, I do a lot of things to protect my space, my, Mm -hmm. just my personal space. So I'm, I have, I can be alone. I can, and that's for me, that's calm. That's peace. I don't want to be alone all the time, but, um, I sh- it's important for me to recognize that this is an emotional need that I have that is going to, not only is it going to, um, it, it not only is going to color how I perceive my experiences, but it's also going to, um, give me a tendency to want to create certain kinds of experiences and want to avoid other kinds of experiences. So, those emotional needs um, are driving a lot of what I even what I notice about any experience or what I perceive as a threat or what I perceive as safe or comfortable. Um, there are people who had, you know, loving, warm families that were like very huggy, you know, that wasn't my family, you know. <laughs> Um, I'm my probably initial reaction when somebody comes up to hug me is probably, is, uh, you know, what are you doing? Go away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that there, we are really, really complex creatures and our social world is a huge part of our identity. The people that are around us, if someone, uh, let's say, let's go back to the hate the boss example or the boss is a jerk example. Yeah. Let's say you have, uh, five people on a team and they all hate the boss. They all agree. And they all go to lunch together and they talk about, Oh, he's a jerk. He did this. Yeah. Right. Oh, let's, Oh, oh, let me tell you this. Oh, did I tell you about what happened at the Christmas party or all these things? Right. And then one person decides to shift. They want to actually try and show up differently and see if they can have a better relationship with the boss. What do you think is going to happen with all those other, that social group? Right. Well, you might find you're, you're, 
can you improve your relationship with the boss, but it means you're not invited to lunch anymore, right? You may find that you're now, your beliefs are now uh, creating a uncomfortable situation, a discomfort among the people that, all the people that you used to hang out with. I mean, when I quit smoking, that was about uh, 20 years ago, I had to stop hanging out with all my friends who smoked for a while. Yeah. I had to basically, you know, I couldn't be with them. And uh, they probably couldn't be with me either. <laughs> so I think there are, what we underestimate a lot of the times is it's not just, you're not just talking to an individual about, you know, that individual's beliefs and trying to change that individual person's beliefs. You're actually talking to them about something that if they do start to shift their beliefs could threaten their entire social world. Yeah. It could threaten their relationship with their family. It could threaten their relationship with their community. It could, could threaten their relationship with their church. It could, it could potentially have the potential that of creating of, of exiling them from everything that they know and that is comfortable and known and their happy place. So, I mean, when we talk about, you know, these kind of things, I think we have to recognize the complexity of the challenge and we have to mm -hmm. have empathy for each other. I was just thinking here when you, you talked about, you know, our identity sometimes is so closely tied to our beliefs. You know, we sort of become our beliefs. And a lot of those aren't necessarily, I guess the way, the way to put it is they're not, we sort of adopt somebody else's beliefs. A good example would be, would be in, a, in a religion, you know, you know, a religion, uh, you sort of adopt whatever the religion's belief system is. And, and then for a lot of people, then it becomes their identity. I am Muslim, I'm Christian, I'm whatever. And... The, my God is the only God. Those other gods don't—they're not valid. Again, it's 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 the same thing. So, what do you do, and how do you? How would you begin to break down and sort of begin to accept that? Oh, well, maybe there are other ways here. There are other gods. I, I'm using religion because it's—I think it, that sort of hits home for many yeah, people, religion. no matter no matter which yeah. which. Uh, which area you are, you know, whether yeah. you believe in any, anything or not, it doesn't matter. Religion's a fascinating one. I have, so for me, the answer to that question is we start to, we start to um, gain or build the courage to experiment, formulate alternative hypotheses of reality and actually do some experiments that would help us say, okay, well, maybe this might be true. I'm going to try and do a little experiment. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the very simple ways of doing an experiment is, uh, what I, I believe Einstein called a thought experiment. You, you think about a scenario. And so let's take the religion example. Okay. So let's imagine you have no religion or you're completely unbiased about religion. And you imagine yourself walking into the desert and there's an oasis in the middle of the desert. And there are, uh, there's an atheist there there's a Jew, there's a Christian, there's a Muslim, there's a Buddhist, uh, whatever else you want to add. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you have to ask them the questions that would help you decide which one, if any of them, is right. Hmm. And you don't have a, a belief walking in. How would you determine? How would you make those 
and and you have to be honest with yourself when you do a thought experiment. You can't just you can't load the experiment and say, well, uh, <laughs> you know, I would, you know, because of your pre-existing beliefs, you have to ask that question honestly and say, how would I? I mean, because you form you we adopt our beliefs uh, from probably our early childhood from our families, right? Most mm-hmm. most often. Um, our immediate families, our extended families, we adopt them um, based on our friends and the people that we care about. We adopt them because we have needs, emotional needs uh, that need to be met, maybe aren't being met by the family. Um, but these beliefs are, you know, where do they come from? Um, that's That thought experiment is actually kind of a hard one, really. It's like, okay, well, another way of doing that thought experiment is, well, what if you tried living your life as a Muslim for a month and see, or if you tried living your life as a Christian for a month, I think the one thing that I think is a very, one very, very powerful way to do an experiment is to, it's, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. So to put another way, it's like, okay, if I believed this, what would I do if I did believe it? Mm-hmm. How would I act if I did believe this to be true? What are the things that I would do? How would I do those things? And then start doing them and observing what happens. I see what happens when you act differently. You start, you can, uh, you know, you, you could think, you could think yourself in circles for a million years about, you know, what it's like to be uh, an Arab living in Palestine. Or you could go to Palestine, as extreme example, it's a lot yep. of work, right, for most people. Or you could go to Palestine and you could actually try and live in an Arab area as an Arab for a while and see what it feels like. And just see what happens when you uh, live mm-hmm. and act in that world. You can put yourself into a new place. You can you can uh, act. I mean, in the book, it's called... I, it's, it's act as if it's not a term that I came up with. It's a term that's very useful though. It's like, well, if you want to understand another, a belief that's different than you, you can act as if it were true. You don't have to believe it. You can act as if it were Mm -hmm. true and see what happens and, and, and perform a little experiment in your life to say, well, what if, um, my, the people in my relationships were not trying to impinge on my personal space. What if I believe that, they were not that when someone knocked on the door, they were knocking because they wanted to spend time with me and they or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what if I were to act as if that were true? How how might I show up differently? What would I do differently? And just like anything else, it's it's like riding a bike. When you first get on a bike, it's really uncomfortable and really weird. And yeah, um, but when you start acting in ways that are congruent with beliefs that you may not hold. You can often find yeah, that you excellent. gain a deeper understanding of those beliefs that you might find that, well, what if I, what if I, what if I was a Buddhist? What, what would I do differently? Well, any, any Buddhist will tell you, you have to sit <laughs> yeah, and you have to sit and breathe and focus on your breathing for long periods of time. That's something you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a Zen Buddhist anyway, that is part of the deal. And uh, you, there's no other way to get there than doing these things. And even in, in depending on the sect, 
there might even be a very precise way that you have to sit and hold your hands <laughs> in a very yeah. precise way, right down to very you know super detail. Um, well, that that is a that is a way to act as if something is true to see what happens. Kids are very, uh, especially little kids, are really good at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting in a different role, and I mean, sometimes you'll see a kid. Uh, They'll grab onto to a role and they'll become that for weeks at a time. Sometimes, you know, maybe they're a stormtrooper or whatever it is. They they kind of cr- dive into this this other role and experiment with it. And uh, I remember I was uh, I was a six million dollar man. If anybody's uh, listening is old enough uh, to remember <laughs> <I> that. <am>. <laughs> Actually, I think it's coming back. Uh, but step into that role and what would it be like, you know, uh, and, you know, it's a way, I guess it's a way of coming out of your, your shell and experimenting with something else and seeing what it's like. Yeah. I like that. There's a ton we can learn from watching kids. I mean, kids, kids are very good at learning. They are figuring things out. They don't have as many barriers to learning because often they don't think they know everything like we do. Mm-hmm. So they're they're exploring, they're um, challenging their assumptions, they're asking questions that often for adults are very inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. incredibly useful. And often they're questions that we should be asking ourselves. Mm-hmm. This this is great. So one of the things that you you mentioned in the book, and you mentioned a few minutes ago, was you know getting out of this uh, uh, the habit space or the automatic you know your your automatic thing that you're going to do, and and actually making space when you gave that told that story about uh, going on the the walk where that that could have turned into world war three with you and your <laughs> wife and mm-hmm. because you you made this break or this space that it actually turned into something else entirely uh and in the book you shared a, a really great story that hit home for me uh about tea about your your mm-hmm. friend and tea because i actually do this uh something very similar and really? and uh i thought wow that's really neat um, and, and especially in, in, in his context where I, I think he were, he works in a, in a big, uh, he works with big, you know, giant companies where there's yeah. a lot of, uh, uh, strict rules and things. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, that's, this, this guy happens to be a friend of mine. His name is Chris Ortiz. He works on a lot of large organizational change projects, usually with banks and credit card companies. There are deep process, oh, yeah. you know, regulatory issues, technology issues, security issues, uh, um, you know, giant, you know, integrations. Uh, two companies get, you know, uh, one buys the other and they've yeah. got to integrate all the back. A bank buys another bank and all that stuff that has to happen behind the scenes. Um, messy, complicated projects with often um, people involved or teams involved that have adversarial relationships yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Like that. And um, you would think, okay, that 
Um, that's not a job anybody <laughs> exactly. Would, yeah, would we, want. We want um, and he does. He has uh, some. I guess you'd call it techniques. Not dissimilar to what I was saying about liminal thinking. The title of the book is a creating. A, you know, a lot of times it's a very powerful just to create the space for anything to happen other than autopilot. Just mm-hmm. open up that space. Uh, and what he does, uh, he's, he does a few things. But one of the things that I think is really powerful that he does is he has a habit of making tea for people. And not just like I grab the Lipton and I, you know, uh, put some boiling water in a cup and I hand you a paper cup. He has a very, I mean, he's a, he's a pretty expert in it. He's got lots of different kinds of tea. He's got, um, and he even travels with it because he travels for work a lot. And what he does is, uh, it's so simple. He makes tea for people and he, uh, there's a couple things that are, that are part of the magic there. One is it's, a. Uh, it's the simple thing of someone doing something special for someone else mm-hmm. that he's got a bunch of teas. He wants you to smell, find the one that appeals to you. He's going to take some time. He's going to brew it for you. He's going to sh- talk to you a little bit about the tea that you picked. And, um, and, uh, part of it is the, um, the feeling of the sort of universal feeling of having a warm cup of tea in your hand and what that mm-hmm. does to you emotionally. Um, Part of it is the uh, thing that happens when people share meals together that probably goes back to our origins in Africa, you know, on, on yes. the uh, savanna where we when you sh- you your enemy is not someone you've had a meal with or had tea with. You cannot. It's hard, very hard to think of someone as an adversary once that you have had this communal experience. It's uh, deep. It's why salespeople take clients out to dinner. It's why right. you know it's it's a uh, it's a fundamental you know uh, part of humanity that when we share food or or something like tea together that we are building relationships. That so there's a, a bunch of these things that are kind of under the surface that are at play. Uh, but one of the stories that he told me that fascinated me was there was a. Um, one of these very adversarial relationships, literally his team on one side of the table, other team on the other side of the table. During the break, he made tea for people. Uh, doesn't sound like a major act. Uh, but after that break, they came back. They were they were not sitting on opposite sides of the table from each other. They sat uh, around the table, much more like a family at a dinner table. The entire tone of the conversation between these two groups had changed to hmm. be something much more collaborative. And like one of the things that I that a quote that he's uh, said to me uh, several times that really has stuck in my head is it's really hard to be angry with a warm cup of tea in your hands. It's, hmm. Yes, yeah. it's, it's pretty difficult. And I've thought about that often as like, OK, well. I usually it doesn't occur to me when I'm angry that I need a cup of warm cup of tea. But when I have a warm cup of tea in my hands, I often reflect on that thought. It would be hard to be angry right now. <laughs> and, and, and I so, think sharing food, I, I wonder, you know, if you think about it, you know, most of us don't we have this this thing we don't really want to eat 
when we're angry, you know, generally. You know, mm-hmm. some people eat when they're angry, but, but yeah, I, I love this idea of, of making a space. And at this, and this story happens to be tea, but it could also be, uh, uh, you know, something else. Uh, keys. Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, you said you do something similar. What is it that, uh, uh, I, what is your. Actually, tea. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I like to, to sit down with people and uh, I, I drink some, some weird uh, green teas that uh, not everybody likes or they're, oh, you know, do you have sugar or something to put in it? Um, but you don't drink a huge cup. You have just a little bit. These are very specialized uh, Japanese green teas. And uh, usually it's an experience that most people haven't had. They haven't had a tea like that. And they're like, wow, this is almost across the board. People will talk about it. You know, they, they might not say that, oh, this is the best tea in the world. I love it. You know, but they might drink it and they're like, hmm, yeah, it's it's different. It's not my favorite, but it, it's this is it's something else to talk about and uh and i do the same thing you know with coffee i like to have a quiet space with and sit down with people and just talk about nothing you know um what you know not not the weather but just nothing and i think just that making space and actually uh i'm guessing in this in this scenario with your your friend is uh he's really listening Mm-hmm. Uh, to w- whatever the people, you know, oh, well, I don't like that kind of tea I want. Uh, you know, maybe he, I, I'm imagining uh, that he's asking a question like, do you do you drink tea? What kinds of teas do you like? That sort of thing. And he's really, li- I, I imagine that's when you have space, that's when we usually sort of draw in and we have a focus to, to listen on the other person. And we're not, dis- there's nothing to disagree about, Right. He is very. He is a a person that is very present. Yeah. When you're with him, you you do feel that you have his his full attention. Yeah, that's that's really. It's rare that uh, that people get that. I, I have an opportunity in in a in a another business that I, that I have that for many years I sit down with people. Uh, for, for three hours and, and it, this is related to cycling um, and I'll get people and we're diagnosing their their problems with their people that are obsessed with cycling this is their thing and we'll sit down and have a conversation and talk about their cycling and they never have an opportunity these are most of them are a lot of executives some CEOs and I'll sit down with them and they don't ever have an opportunity for somebody to listen to them about their hobby that they talk about their hobby they're always in meetings and things they don't have that that space and usually you know, usually after the sessions people are they're like wow this this is amazing i've never had you know anybody sit down and listen to me uh, about my bike and it was so helpful uh so helpful to uh to have that experience and I think it's it's really just making the space because I'm very intentionally my office is set up where it's very quiet. There's nobody else. They're not going to get disturbed by the phones aren't going to ring. Nothing. There's nobody else looking. You know, it's very private, and uh, it's just like a private conversation, a space. Well, you're a good listener. 
Uh, not always, but my wife might not say that. <laughs> well, um, today you are. Um, it's all, it's, uh, we're going to kind of wrap up here, but th- this is all sort of playing. I mean, it's, it goes back to me. It's, it's sort of playing with my own thoughts and, and I'm trying to, am I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to come to the table and play with me too. Right. Um, yeah. And if I can, I think if I can start to, I hope I am playing with you. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. But if, <laughs> if, if I can start to break down what I believe, then maybe I can sort of begin to break down what someone else believes. And I, it's not going to be accurate because I'm not them, but maybe at least, and I'm probably not going to agree with them or I may or may not, but, uh, at least I can come to some sort of understanding. Is that is that accurate? What you're what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a uh, in in our culture we have a. Um, I'm talking about maybe the U.S. specifically, even you know we have a culture that is uh, kind of oriented around combat in a lot of ways. You know, we got yeah. you know for uh, debates, we got political debates, we have. Uh, we big into sports, uh, city against city. You know, we mm-hmm. we uh, we uh, uh, we litigate everything. We sue each other. We're, uh, you know, the the format of how we find justice is about two people arguing in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, the best arguer isn't always the best way to get to the truth, right? We have um, when we look on a talk show and we're trying to learn about a new thing, we. We pick two experts at two extreme poles and we watch them argue with each other. Don't really often learn anything <laughs> from that. Um, we, um, it's built into our culture, this adversarial, that, that the way to, uh, that's a contest. That's a, mm-hmm. the, the, the winner is the one that, you know, uh, is right or gets to decide or, um, who won the debate. Uh, I mean, and it, and I think we, um, it tends to in, what the the subtext of that, or the, the the thing that we're doing that's destroying the fabric of our society every time we do that is we are um, we're focusing always our attention on the things that divide us as opposed to the things that connect and unite us. Mm. What you know when we have someone when you when you bump into someone that you disagree with, um, our culture kind of reinforces this attitude. Okay, that we found a thing to argue about. Great, let's argue. Let's do. Let's go. You know, let's get it on. Um, as opposed to looking for those areas where we have common ground, where we have things that we both care about, that we share, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it's not that hard to turn your attention to the stuff that where you do have common ground with people. I think that's part of what Chris and, and you are doing when you share tea with people. Is this is something that we have that's common, that's common ground. We all have families. We all have, we all want to find meaning in our work. Um, we have, um, you know, there are way more things that connect us than divide us in, in most cases. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, just because you've got an area that you can argue with someone about does not mean that that's the best way to spend your time with that person arguing about that thing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing cause it, it just brings up fam- family stuff, you know, family, we always argue. Right. Yeah. Uh, family's perfect. Right. You know, the family is a perfect example, right? You can, 
you can you can spend your time arguing. You can spend your time, you know, uh, thinking about the things that are precious that you care about mm-hmm. that matter. And the in fact, the best way probably to change anyone's mind about anything is not by hammering on the areas right. of greatest resistance, but by building by increasing the areas of common ground to to find the things that you can actually. Uh, have in common and share and want to work on together mm-hmm. and start working on those things. And yes, there may be, there's a great uh, story that I, I don't think I told in the book, but I, I read or heard uh, recently about, uh, it was a, it was a, a, a women's group, two women's groups that had opposite opi- uh, uh, points of view on abortion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, it was a conflict resolution um guy I think that I was ta- interviewing and he talked about how did I tell this story in the book or I don't think mm, I did I don't no I don't recall I don't recall anyway this, these two women's groups and uh, the exercise that the conflict resolution exercise that they went through is that they had to um, adopt each other's position and so they had to argue for the opposite side oh, like position that. and they had to argue with it it to until the other side said, yes, I feel that you've understood our point of view. Uh, they had to actually not just say it in like a lip service, but they had to actually mm-hmm. say it in such a way that the other side agreed, yes, you've heard and understood my point of view. And after going through this exercise, one of the things that they discovered was that they had a huge area of common ground, which was uh, about child welfare. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the um, creating um, uh, a safe environment for children. And they started working together on childhood uh, uh, issues. And whether or not, and the thing that's interesting about this is that neither, uh, no one in either group changed their opinion about abortion. But they did change their opinions about each other. And they... They actually, and part of what, the way that they did that was by actually finding a common cause that they both cared about enough to actually work side by side on this issue. And where they were on, if, you know, in other words, finding a way to be on the same team, even when you disagree. I think if, you know, can you imagine if our, if our uh, Congress could do that? <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? Yeah. I mean, yeah. really, I, I mean, can you imagine what would change? Some of them, our, I think, do. I think some of them do. But but most uh, the majority do not. Uh, the, you know we're just. I'm going to cross my arms and I'm going to sit here, uh, and be like a little kid in in kindergarten. I'm not going to come across. Right, and, and we create this environment. Right, we yeah. create the we create the um, we it's we are we've created a society that you know um, it's combat and hmm. I mean we are we are the cheering crowd for this. Uh, these kind of activities. We are not the, um, you know, we are not the, um, we are not, uh, we can't absolve ourselves of blame for this situation. No, we, we are. And I, I want to um, share a little story on that. So the weekend after the election here in the United States, um, my family and I, one of the things that we love to do is we go camping. Uh, that's that's our our thing we do as a family, and we went up to the mountains nearby in North Carolina, and we went camping. And for some reason, at the campground that where we stayed, uh, everybody in the campground is ultra conservative 
group there. And we, we are not. We're definitely uh, li- liberals. Uh, and, you know, we go in the campground and there's Trump flags all over the place. And there's ju- just lots of, uh, you know, NRA signs and don't tread on me and things like that. And this one guy that was camping across from us was one of the most blatant with all these big signs. And my son saw it and he's like, oh my god. It's got to be a lot of effort to take your signs with you to a campground. Yeah, well, the, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what they do. <laughs> and and I, I was like, oh gosh, you know. And so I saw the guy. So I'm into bicycles and, and you know, and uh, riding bikes. And I saw the guy had a mountain bike over there. And I, so I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I got to make an example for my son here. Because he was feeling like, oh, my God, I don't want to say anything to anybody. They're going to hate me or whatever. And so I walked over there and uh, I started talking to the guy about mountain bikes. And we had a great conversation. What a super nice guy. And we didn't talk about politics or anything. We just talked about bicycles and riding in the woods and he told me where the trails were and i should go here and there and yeah we talked for about 15 20 minutes and i think both of us left you know oh wow what a nice guy you know and we had common ground with that um and i and i think even after that i i can't imagine even if we started talking politics we still had this other thing in common where we may see each other out on the trail and we both enjoyed you know, being outdoors in the wilderness, uh, and riding bikes. Um, so anyway, that was, uh, I was trying to, uh, deliberately trying to make an example for my son so he could see me. He didn't come over to talk, but, uh, uh, yeah, well, that's, know. that is your, that is your, your, your best chance to, to bring someone to another point of view is to build a relationship with them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, Dave, this has been fantastic. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share before we close up here? Yes, actually, I do. Um, I was just talking to my publisher before getting on the line with you, and he said, be sure to remind uh, people that it, uh, you can give them a discount code for the book. So if people want to are listening to the podcast and they want to buy the book, I have a discount code that I can give you. Oh, it's that would name. be, it's that's the, fantastic. Uh, it's the name of my company. It's X-P-L-A-N-E. Um, Explain, this is a okay. company that I founded many years ago. We didn't actually talk about it, but X-P-L-A-N-E, just like plane, like an airplane with an X in front of it. And uh, you, uh, to get the, you, to, the discount code is 20% off. And uh, you can get that by going to the publisher website, which is uh, twowavesbooks.com, I think. Two Waves Press or Two Waves Books. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes and, and the uh, explain. I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes. So if anybody is listening and, oh, you're not <laughs> – don't quite get the website, just go to, uh, go to the, the podcast website and you'll see all the info there. Um, and where – Dave, where can people find out a little bit more about you and uh, – your, your business website and all that? Uh, my personal website is uh, very similar to the company name. It's explainer.com. I've always been interested in explaining things. That's where I come from. Um, it's xplaner.com. So you can, you know, find out about me and links to all. I have uh, 
books, a list of books that I think are great to read, not just my own, but others. Um, and, uh, and you can contact me there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, a great conversation and, uh, I hope to uh, further the conversation in the future. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Victor. I really appreciate the time. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I would love to hear your questions, comments, and ideas on this. And you can hit me up on Twitter if you want, which is at Victor Jimenez. Or you can just go over to theflywheelpodcast.com and you can leave a comment or uh, contact me through there. Do you want more sales and better connections with your customers? Sign up for my new mini email course called Torque. Torque is that energy required to get get things rolling. It's a primer for generating more sales and deeper connections with your customers in just seven days. It's super easy. You just sign up. The email shows up in your inbox. It's going to take you a couple of minutes every day. And I guarantee you at the end of seven days, you're going to have a much clearer picture of your business and how you're interacting with your customers. You can sign up at theflywheelpodcast.com front slash torque, T-O-R-Q-U-E, or you can go to victorhumanis.co and front slash T-O-R-Q-U-E. There's also a link in the show notes at theflywheelpodcast.com. You'll see the show notes there. Thanks for listening.